0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I'm finally going to dig into how to bring all of the advice, best practices, and how we're supposed to do do product to a new team. And one of the things I struggle with when interviewing product experts for the show is that what works for them at their companies is often so company and culture specific that it's hard to see when we can use it in our own day-to-day in a different place. So I finally found someone who built up their own product philosophy and is now in a position to bring that philosophy to a totally new company. So I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Scott. So my guest today is Scott Williamson. He's the new VP of product at GitLab. Before that, he was the VP of product at SendGrid, which was acquired by Twilio, where he was also VP of product. So Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Maggie. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. So I want to just get right into it because we have a topic that I'm really excited to get into today. And I want to start with the product process or the philosophy that you developed in your time at SendGrid and Twilio first. And then I want to talk about how you're thinking about bringing that to GitLab. Sounds good. Yeah, to start, what was SendGrid like when you joined and how did you evolve that product team over time?
1: Yeah, I joined uh, SendGrid, it be about seven years ago now. So at the time we were on a series B round, about 100 people overall, less than 20 million in revenue, and three product managers who at the time reported to a VP of marketing. So I was the first product management leader there, like many technical founder-led startups. The founders had done a lot of the product management on their own. They were pretty close to the customer and the customer problem. They were developers and had experienced this problem too, where email is tough in an app. And so they created SendGrid to solve that. And so that's why product management was brought in a little bit late. It didn't get brought into the company until about year three. So I joined and had an opportunity to establish the function, hire the team up, over time evolve how we worked. And so the way it ended up, the processes and flows we used at the end bore no resemblance to where we started, but it was a much different company at the time. By the time I finished up, we had gone public and gotten acquired. We were about 500 people. The product team was about 30. We had a director tier in place. We had a pricing function, a developer experience function. And a number of other sort of adjacent functions to product management. So it was an amazing opportunity to scale the team up in a bunch of different ways.
0: At the end, you know, what was your philosophy in the process that you had your team using? Because I know we talked about before the move from focusing on features to more focusing on problems to be solved. So what did that end up looking like for you guys?
1: Yeah, I think like many companies and many product teams, when I joined, we were pretty feature focused, feature function. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the competition, thinking about things in terms of features. And most of the PMs and the developers weren't as close to the original customer problem as the initial founders were. And so when you get into a situation where the PMs and the engineers get disconnected from customers, get disconnected from that initial customer problem, and start thinking in feature terms, you can pretty easily build the wrong thing. And so we came to the conclusion that we needed to back up and rather than start thinking about a feature or a competitive dynamic, we should start from the customer problem. One fundamental change was start with the problem, not the solution and separate those two.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So We created a validation flow for problem discovery. To make sure that those two were separate and we didn't move towards solutioning or building anything until we were sure we had the problem well defined.
0: And how did you get buy-in from that founder group? Or were they totally on board with that process?
1: By that time, the product management team was pretty well established. The founder Mm -hmm. had stepped into other roles that there wasn't undue friction there. That was fine it was definitely a change management process because everyone has to change the way they behave. The PMs have to slow down and take more time up front. The customer success team and sales teams and teams that bring requests on behalf of customers have to be a little more patient too because in many places you take an idea that comes from either an exec or a competitor or a key customer and you just do that we got out of that mode. We backed up and went through this validation flow. So everyone in the company had to allow that discovery process to take place and Mm -hmm. what that feels like is that feels slow (laughs) because before you can just, Oh, I see that thing. Let's just build that feature. Let's go. That feels good in the short term because you can take action right away. A lot of us want to be action oriented and just go. And so this can feel slow. And I think to boil it all down, that was the thing that everybody from the top down had to get comfortable with. And so Mm -hmm. one way that we handled that is we sort of branded the whole thing. We called it the SendGrid way. We documented it in a beautiful way and explained why this was important. We referenced the fact that places like Amazon and Pixar and Intercom and, drift, <laughs> do things this way. And so we tried to attach some why and try to explain it in a beautiful way so that people could kind of get behind it as a process. Right. And once the company starts to trust the process, they allow you to spend that time because they see that the results are there.
0: Okay. So then you had moved to this, you know, you have to do the validation flow before you presumably get into building. What were the other hallmarks of the process that you kind of came up with?
1: Yeah. So first is doing the interviewing itself. We asked that PMs and designers pair up on at least 10 customer interviews on every major problem that they wanted to go investigate. I think mm-hmm. to map a problem to a typical agile process, this is epic level sort of stuff. You wouldn't do this at the story level. You wouldn't do this for a small fix to something that already exists, but you might do it for a brand new product or a brand new feature, or when you're serving a new customer, you don't know particularly well. And mm-hmm. so, start with 10 interviews. The artifact that we would review after that we called an opportunity canvas. It's a one pager. There's lots of canvases out there. We sort of took a lot of the options and crafted one that made sense for SendGrid and answered the questions we wanted to make sure were answered. And then the PMs would come in and we'd do a review with the product leadership team, sort of pressure test it. And if the problem statement was tight and we understood why we really need to do this and we knew how we were going to measure success and a host of other things, then we would green light the team to move on to the solution phase. And I'm happy to talk about that too, if you would like.
0: Yeah, so then what did that phase look like? Just to get a sense of the whole circle.
1: In the solution phase... The PM would start by breaking down what they think the solution is in a story map.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a story map is kind of a visual, flexible, collaborative tool. It could be on a whiteboard. It could be sticky notes. It could be something like mural. could be even a spreadsheet where you organize the story map around customer value. So you have these columns of customer value and individual stories underneath them that line up to it. And then you can draw lines on it. Okay, here's our line for the MVP. And then you can get a sense for what must be done in the first release, what can come later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the designer takes that and builds a design for V1. But the designer has the big picture, the engineering manager has the big picture that can sort of think long-term yeah. and work on the smallest iteration. And so that combination of the story map plus the design, we would then take out for another 10 interviews. Say, hey, target customer, here's our answer. Here's our design. You told us you had this problem. Does it solve it or not? Right. And you get real qualitative feedback. Do they respond well? Is it ho-hum? Do they have feedback? And if you can get through this problem phase and the solution phase with a high degree of confidence that, You're solving that customer problem. Then you can move into the engineering and build phase with a lot of confidence that Mm -hmm. you're going to make good use of this time. There's a high likelihood this is going to work because we've tested it ahead of time.
0: Right. And then I love that you guys have a relatively specific number of interviews you have to do because I think it's easy to skip over that when you feel confident and you think that you know the problem really well, or you think you've really nailed the solution. Yep. I think it's really easy to kind of skip over those steps.
1: I think so too. And you know, given what I said earlier that everybody wants to move fast, there's always pressure to move fast. And if you don't hold a line on that, the teams will move fast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: And the fact is we're wrong a lot more than we think we are humans, it's just human nature. We love our own ideas. We get invested in them. We overestimate their value.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's hard to check that yourself. It's even hard to check it with the whole team. Like the designer gets invested in it and the engineering manager gets invested in it. But customers can give you the cold truth. <laughs> yes. See it and they don't react well or they can't figure out the way how to use it. That's like cold water on the face. It's like, oh, okay. Maybe we don't have yeah. that right yet, but you'll never know unless you go out and talk to people. And so I totally agree that having that set expectation about how many were required was an important ingredient.
0: Okay, interesting. So you have developed this product philosophy at SignGrid. You know, obviously it took you several years, I'm assuming, to get that kind of all up and running and humming. Now you're moving over to GitLab. You know, what does that look like? What are you taking with you? How are you approaching your new team? Yeah,
1: it's a great question. GitLab is a totally different company in terms of the way it works. SendGrid was very planful and deliberate and did things in bigger chunks. And I think part of the reason for that is that SendGrid's core value proposition is near 100% reliability. Like we're sending billions of emails a day. We have to be really precise about the system and everything in it, like everything we did had to scale. Yeah, they got to be pretty thoughtful and careful about that. And so thus, that was kind of the company DNA. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, one of the values is iteration and almost everything is broken down into its smallest constituent parts. There's a minimum viable change ethos around the company. And so, just sort of a much different DNA, much different work style, much different product development flow. And so I have no intention of taking what we did at Syngrid and dropping the Syngrid way into GitLab. I'm certain that would fail. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I rolled out to the team when I joined was my own product principles. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of a philosophically, how do I feel about this function? What principles should we drive through whatever system we have? That's kind of how I view the world. I think about the world. I want to make sure that where we end up drives those principles forward. I don't care too much about whether the system looks the same as it did at SynGrid. I'm sure it will not. Right. So starting from principles, learning GitLab, and hopefully we'll find a way for me to sort of at minimum will change my way into a product development process that honors those principles.
0: So what are those principles? Are you? Can you share them?
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was ready for this. I thought you might okay. ask.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All
1: right. I'll give you the bullets and we could dive into any one of them you want. Yeah. So this is sort of principles from my view. Number one, hiring is job one. You're only as good as your team. And product is such a creative and Important role that you need the best players you can possibly get. A great yep. PM gets you so much more leverage than an average PM. So we need to keep raising the bar. Good people want to work with good people, all of that. Mm-hmm. Two, care personally and challenge directly. This is a philosophy I borrowed from a book called Radical Candor. Yep. I want to manage people and I want everyone on the team to like care about each other. Like we're people, we're not machines but be able to challenge each other and provide real-time, honest feedback. Like people need mm-hmm. to know where they stand. And so if we can all behave that way, it creates a healthy dynamic where we, you have enough psychological safety to feel like a team and challenge each other to do their best work. Three, always be learning. PM is a fast-moving profession. Tech is fast-moving. If you're not intentional about your own career development about your own skill set, the world will pass you by real fast. And so as a team, I wanna invest in my own skill development and my team's skill development Mm -hmm. and make that a team-wide priority. Four, you're not the customer, talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) And we talked about this earlier, like we're wrong, get out of the building, talk to the customers. Five, start with the problem, not the solution. We talked about that. Six, prioritize ruthlessly. It's better to do a few things well than many things poorly. In any product role, you're going to get stretched thin. And it's important to know what matters and make sure you get that done. So I encourage everyone to, A, know what matters, and then, B, say no if you have to. Mm -hmm. Seven, assume you're wrong. (laughs) We talked about that before, like we're wrong a lot. Have a hypothesis and test it. Don't be afraid to rule it out. Eight, iterate. It's okay to have big ideas, but break it down. Move fast. GitLab is awesome at this. And then nine, be data-driven. Don't use your gut. Have a success metric. Track it. Try to drive it. Try to augment the intuition that you gain from customer interviews with data as to whether what you're doing is working or not. And that's it.
0: <laughs> there wasn't a 10th one. You didn't want to round it out. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: I, I had 10. I pulled it. I just stopped at nine. I thought okay. that was fairly comprehensive.
0: So, what was the recession like at GitLab when you kind of came to them with a set of principles?
1: I think pretty good. You know, I certainly interviewed with these forward. <laughs> like, I wanted to make sure there was a fit between how they wanted to run and what my principles were. Right. I didn't go through this list necessarily, but I was testing for these things during the interview process and I felt like it was gonna be a match. Mm -hmm. The areas where GitLab isn't real strong on some of these principles, there's a strong executive interest from the CEO down to invest there. So it was like, there was an acknowledgement that I had made progress there in my last role that could be helpful at the company. So from day one, I felt like in general, there's a good fit here. I think the PM team is on board with these philosophically. The mm-hmm. million dollar question is how are we going to do right. that? How are we going to make that work at GitLab? And that's an active, open, healthy debate. And you know, I'm sure it'll take quarters and years to fully realize all these within the system, mm-hmm. but that's fine. This stuff doesn't happen overnight.
0: Yeah, because I think one thing that I've learned over the course of doing this podcast and talking to other people in product is that, like you mentioned before, the way that teams work is so context specific to the company that they're at and the culture and the type of product and the market and all that kind of stuff. So It's one thing to share a piece of advice or a way that someone did something, and it's another to actually try to do that yourself. (laughs) So if you were, you know, based on, you know, your experience, or still obviously early days at GitLab, like what advice do you have to, you know, maybe a PM or someone who's not the VP of product, who's joining a new team, who has some idea of how they want to work and wants to bring that to their team?
1: I guess start small. Mm -hmm. First of all, start with why. Tell them why you think this is important. Tell them if you have a principle around it or something like that that you think's a fundamental truth of product. Tell them why and start from there. And then say, and here's how I'd like to test it. So if it's, hey, I think we should start with the problem, not the solution. Mm-hmm. I'm going to test this by talking to five customers and filling out a canvas and I'll review that. And let's see if that helps drive more clarity as we move through the process. Like take a little thing, use a little ingenuity, Mm -hmm. be assertive about it and show people the results.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that it feels harder than I think it probably is to actually do something differently because you're so used to doing something a certain way, but we actually just going through goal setting here at Drift, decided to switch up a couple of the things that we were doing. And I just said, you know, why don't? what if we just did it a different way? And even just saying that, you know, I didn't know if I could say it, but I said it anyway, and everyone was like, yeah, let's try it out. So I think even just taking that first step of floating an idea and just being willing to kind of test something out on your own, maybe even doing more work than you might otherwise do just to try something out is definitely worth it.
1: Yeah, and I think framing it as a test feels safe. Right. Framing it as a process change feels dangerous. Hey, I'm going to run a test or pilot or something. Use language like that to make people Mm -hmm. people know – this is a test. There will be a moment where we decide whether this is good or not. Let's just try it. It's low risk.
0: Yeah, and I think that's also engages more people and giving you better feedback. You know, when you approach a new team or approach a situation, and you want to change something with, we're testing it. I'd like your feedback. You know, we're all in this together type of thing. Yeah. The one I would love to get your take on, I don't know how quickly we can do this, but in the prioritize ruthlessly and know what matters, how do you help PMs? see the forest for the trees? Because it can be really hard to separate yourself from maybe, let's say you're, you own a specific feature set. You know, how do you help them step back and kind of understand the relative priority of different things?
1: I'll just tell you how we did this at SendGrid. Yeah. We had a director tier, six-page mm-hmm. style prose documents that explained their two-year strategy and writing. What that forced them to do is get their own minds right about what really mattered. Like what's our situation? Like how are we positioned in the market? What are our constraints and problems? And then what are we going to do about it? You know, based on all that, what really matters out of here? And what falls out of that is kind of a thematic statement about what matters What's also important about these docs is what's not on there. In any one- or two-year time period, you can do a lot, but you can't do it all. And so it's helpful to say, hey, here's what's really important in the next year or two Mm -hmm. at a thematic level. And then you can take that, and then the PMs, as they're doing their picking out which problems to solve, can make sure that that maps back to that written strategy Mm -hmm. in their area. So I found that if you can write it down and get the team on board and have everybody have a shared mental model about where you're going you know, in the next one or two years, then the projects underneath it oftentimes match. And if they don't, it's easier to spot it.
0: Right, because you set the framework in which everyone is working is shared.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then there's one more tactic, which is you know, at that next click down – let's call it the epic level. Mm -hmm. You got a two-year strategy and you could do any number of things. You got this list of problems slash epics that you could tackle. How do you rate those? We borrowed the rice scoring technique from Intercom, which I think does a reasonable job of helping you sort a reasonably sized list of ideas against each other. The formula is reach, how many people care, impact, How much do they care? And you get multipliers for things that are really important. Mm -hmm. Confidence. How well do we understand this space, this tech? You get penalized for stuff you don't understand that well. And then you divide those three by level of effort in terms of person months. So you get an advantage for stuff that's small. Uh, It's pretty clever. Rating system. It works pretty well rating monetary versus non-monetary things against each other. And so if you're trying to score 20 things or so against each other, it works pretty well.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. So I want to just ask you two more questions. First, what are you reading to or listening to or recommending to your team to listen to that's sort of helping you, as you mentioned, always be learning?
1: For each of those principles, Uh I recommend a book. Oh, So maybe I could just rattle those off. Yeah, do it. For the hiring one, there's a book called Recruit Rockstars, which is a great book about recruiting. For the care personally and challenge directly, there's a book called Radical Candor. For Always Be Learning, Mm -hmm. there's a book called Peak, which talks about what it takes to be awesome at something, and it takes a lot. (laughs) You got to know you want to be great. For You're Not the Customer, talk to them inspired which i know a lot of people have read from Marty kagan yep start with the problem not the solution there's a book called uh, product leadership which covers oh, yeah. a lot of interesting ground this is one topic among many in there for prioritize ruthlessly essentialism uh, is a great book on focusing on what matters for assume you are wrong thinking fast and slow is an awesome book on behavioral economics. Iterate, you know, of course, lean startup. Mm-hmm. Be data driven. There's a book called How to Measure Anything, which is a fairly dense read, but um, it does a great job of describing that it's possible to measure just about anything. You know, yeah. people can sometimes have a hard time figuring out how to maybe indirectly measure something that doesn't have a clear success metric. So a great book for how to think about
0: that. Awesome. This is an incredible list. I love this. And you didn't hit on the most common ones, which are I think Creativity Inc. is probably the most highly recommended book that I've asked people about. Yeah, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last question. So what's one piece of advice you'd give for people who are listening who are in product on how to grow their careers and get better?
1: I alluded to this earlier from a team standpoint, but I'll reiterate it. I think having a growth mindset is important. Don't assume that what you're good at today is fixed. You can get better at stuff. For example, public speaking hasn't been my gift. You know, It's not a natural skill for me. I worked really hard on it and, and improved quite a bit on that front. And that's one of these ones that's hard to move. So I guess I'm just saying I've had personal experience moving something that was pretty hard to do. You can do it if you put enough into it and you know you need to move it. Be intentional. Don't assume you're fixed as a person. Yeah, just always keep investing in your career. Don't let it just happen to you.
0: I love that advice. Yeah, someone told me that early on. I had an encounter with a person I was in consulting and a VP who was many levels above me at the time. And she just kind of looked at me and said, you know, make sure you're doing this for the right reasons and you don't get stuck. Like always think about where you are and why you're there. And for some reason, that really struck me. And ever since then, I've tried always to be intentional about that.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's not always about moving up. Sometimes people are happy in their current role. It's just about being ever better at that or improving on one weakness here. So I'm not suggesting everybody should want to be the CEO, but know what you want and then be the best you can at either getting there or Doing that thing well.
0: Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was incredible. So much wisdom and hope everyone really enjoyed the episode and please leave Scott a review. So thanks, Scott.
1: <laughs> thanks, Maggie. It was fun.